Welcome to Locally Sourced Joey. We're feeling great here because the Cubs are still World Series champions. And we've got a guy who has been to plenty of great sporting events himself, Eric Merlis, joining us. He's a veteran of 25 years in the sports world. He's had stops at CBS Sports Network, NCAA.com, Fox Sports, the NBA, all different kinds of places. He's been to a lot of different sporting events. And he's the author of two books, Being There, 100 Sports Pros Talk About the Best Sporting Events They Ever Witnessed Firsthand, which was published back in 2007, and the sort of sequel to that book, I Was There, which features additional broadcast journalists sharing their favorite moments that they've seen in person. And there's just something special about witnessing a cool event like that front and center. And Eric was kind enough to chat with me about all things sports, so let's hop right into it. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for taking the time to chat. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. So I think to, to hop off, I'd just like to ask what... What was the driving factor behind you putting this book together? I, it's actually a, a sequel of sorts. I had done this back in 2007. Uh, so this is the second time around for me on this. Uh, the first one, the impetus for that was I, I was playing around with a website. Um, I was in between jobs, and I was just kind of goofing around, trying some different, different things out. And, uh, on this website, I was doing a top five topic every week. And I was asking friends in the media different top five things. And one of the topics ended up being the top five moments you've seen in person. And it just resonated with everybody. Uh, my friends in the media started having the conversation with their friends in the media. And it kind of made its way into press rooms. And then you would hear people like Dave Anderson, who's a legendary writer from the New York Times, start talking about the 55 World Series and Super Bowl three and events like that. And my friends came back to me after having a couple of their conversations, and they were like, you know, if you get the right people involved and, and, and are able to find a publisher, you've got something here. There, there's a book to be done here. Uh, so that's how we did the, That's how I did it the first time around this. Like I said, this was really kind of a sequel. Times have changed in the last nine years between social media and, and different ways of getting word out there about the book and, and, and ease of participation in, in my personal situation. Um, and it was just time to do it again. Very cool, very cool. And I have to ask, because I'm a Cubs fan, how many people would have put the World Series had you done this book now? I think anybody that was <laughs> anybody that was there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, certainly watching it on TV. It's, it's funny, whenever I watch an event on TV now or whenever I'm at a game now, uh, when it's over or when something happens, I will look at whoever I'm with or whoever I'm watching it with and I'll say, all right, that was bookworthy. And it's just become kind of one of those phrases I end up using to describe any sporting event. And, and that one was absolutely far and away bookworthy and would probably end up, depending on the combination of people I, end up, I would have in a book, uh, it would probably be one of the most talked about things that, that you, can, you can put out there. would agree. And uh, this is... This is probably going to sound bad being a Cubs fan, but I was out watching it, and then during the rain delay, I decided to come home. And so the top oh, of the... No. I know, I know. I thought it was going to be a long thing. I saw the map. I was like, oh, that looks awful. <laughs> it's going to be ours. And then... so and it, top... was, it was the most welcome rain delay in sports history. Oh, absolutely. It, it, you know, if you look at Twitter when that was all going on, everybody's like, 
you know what? I don't want this to end. I'm kind of happy it's raining. I don't want to, I want this to keep going. Let, let them play for a tie and have to do this again tomorrow. <laughs> well, that's what I was thinking. It, yeah, it would be like a, a three-hour delay, and we'd have we'd have another tie and then come back. But yeah, I'm, I'm in the car, and they're like, all right, we're starting off the top of the tenth, and I'm like, oh no. So. <laughs> But it's all right. I did get to see the the bottom of the tent, and of course I was recording that's, it. So. That's what you needed yeah. to see. You yeah. needed to see the, the last out and the celebration. Yes, and it was it was glorious. And I probably went a little too heavy on the World Series gear the next day, but that, no, it doesn't no, come around. Thing. You waited on you know, I, again. I, fan, your fan base has waited 108 years. I know you haven't, <laughs> but you know after after a wait like that. I think you're allowed to buy whatever you want and enjoy it as much as you want. Nobody's going to complain. As long as the Cub fans don't turn into Red Sox fans and get really obnoxious about it, I think you guys can have this celebration as long as you want. That's the goal, yeah. I, I do not want want the city to turn into that, so we'll see. Right. We'll see how it goes. I think it, it uh, probably helps having the Bears and the Bulls just kind of mired in mediocrity right now to <laughs> keep us down a little bit. Well, you, you, you had a long enough run with the Bulls where you can, you know, this isn't so bad anymore. So. Exactly. It seems, yeah, it seems like the, the sports kind of go in cycles. So it's it's basketball for a little bit, then hockey. Now maybe it's baseball's turn, and maybe in 2040 or something the Bears can, can get back to success. <laughs> we'll see. So who so who are your teams? I have to, I mean, I, I see that you've uh, worked with the New York Islanders before, so are you... Kind of a, a New yeah, York fan. Yeah, I, I'm. I grew up on Long Island, okay. and, and if you grew up on Long Island, uh, you fall into one of two categories as a sports fan. Uh, if your parents grew up as sports fans, then you skew towards the traditional teams, the Giants and the Yankees and the Rangers. If you were like me and your parents weren't really into sports, then you end up basically going to the newer teams. So I'm a Met fan and a Jet fan and an Islander fan and. Uh, it's been it's been a long thirty years for for that combination since, <laughs> since there's been a championship. You know, it's it, it's been rough. Uh, the Jets haven't been to a Super Bowl in my lifetime yet, so uh, I'm I'm still sitting and waiting. It, you know, you get glimpses of hope, but you know, certainly as a Jet fan, you 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 don't get let those hopes get too high because you know they're going to come crashing down sooner or later. <laughs> yeah, there's there's been quite a few uh, Jets. I guess I can ask you, what are your We'll we'll get to your top three moments in person that you've sure. been into later. But as a, a New York sports fan, do you have you know a couple moments that that stand out to you either for how good they were or how bad they were? Oh, of course, I think everybody does. And, and you know, I, I've been lucky enough to work in this business a long time, and uh, and have been lucky enough to have access to be at a lot of these events. And, and that's you know, again, that's the impetus for all of this. And and, and it's a conversation that whether you work in the business or not, you sit around with your friends and you talk about these things. Now, I grew up, again, an, an Islander fan. I was 11 years old when they won their first Stanley Cup, and I remember exactly where I was watching it on TV. I remember where I was watching each of the next three Stanley Cups when they won the four in a row. Um, I wasn't at any of them, but I, I know where I was. I can remember it all vividly. I know where I was um, for, for Game 6 of the 86 World Series. I know where I was for Game Seven of the '86 World Series. That it, it stays with you, um, and those for me, those are obviously the memories I have. You know, of those three teams, those are it. Um, you know, you said we'll get into my list a little bit later, and there is an Islander moment that I was at when I was working there that kind of tops all of that. Um, it wasn't winning a championship or anything like that, 
But they, look, there are there are more negative memories for these three teams than there are positives. <laughs> I try to tune them out because you know those they they just add up and they wear you down after a while. As a Cubs fan, I know you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yes, uh, and and you know those. It might be 30 years since one of my teams has won a championship. It's going to make it that much sweeter when it happens, and it will sooner or later. Uh, the Jets probably have offered the most crushing moments. You know whether it was playoff games, missed field goals, and butt fumbles and things like that. Uh, I, I think they probably have they probably have affected my emotions negatively more than the other two teams. Yeah, I can imagine so. Um, this, I, I know people people still just randomly send me a, a gif or video of the butt fumble and it's, it's going <laughs> to live on an infamy. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I feel bad because my sister went to USC, so Mark Sanchez bring, in, uh, bring a you good know, name to the school. <laughs> he had a chance. Uh, I, I still don't think uh, he was as bad as everybody says. I think he regressed because the team allowed him to regress and they didn't build up an offensive line as guys were leaving and they didn't give him enough weapons. And the coaches kind of let the the offense when he was there, they they kind of let it die on the vine a bit. Um, and he he regressed because of because of circumstances, I think. I think he would have been a fine NFL quarterback. He wouldn't have been Tom Brady. He wouldn't have been any of those guys. But he would have been a fine NFL quarterback if if he had the right coaching staff and was on the right team. And isn't that isn't that the uh, the tale too often? Like I always think the NBA is my my favorite, uh, or basketball is my favorite sport. So um, I always think like a guy like Demarcus Cousins, like if he was just on really any other team, I you'd think right, that right. he could. He's he's already good, but I mean, you know how how great can someone be just by being in that? Yeah, he's not going to get better where he is because they're not surrounding him with talent. Uh, and and you need for for a guy to go from. Being a star like Demarcus Cousins is to a superstar to you know an elite player, it, it can't be solely on him. Certainly in a game like basketball, where one guy does not win a game, mm-hmm. uh, one guy can get hot and carry a team through a section of a game, uh, and if that section lasts long enough, it might be able to steal a game. But one guy does not win a game. You need help, and if you don't surround a guy like that with with at least one other guy who is close to that level, then, then he's not going to get any better. Can you talk a little bit, too, about your background prior to this book? Like, how did you get started in the sports industry and, and kind of your path into getting to uh, create these two books? Sure. You know, I, I, it's funny. I, last night I did a, a small signing at a Barnes & Noble near my house, and one of my high school English teachers paid a visit. And I, when I was in high school, I was the math guy. And so we had a big laugh about that because here's my English teacher and I've you know, written my second book and I'm at a Barnes and Noble and, you know, I, he knows me. He knew me as the math guy back then. And when I was in school uh, at NYU, uh, I was in business school and I had to uh, write a term paper. Everyone had to take freshman writing, regardless of what your major was or what school you were in. And I ended up doing a term paper in this writing class on sports fans. And one of the New York teams, the Knicks, I believe, uh, let me come into the locker room after a game and uh, interview some players about the fans. And as I'm doing this, I'm saying to myself, this is what I want to be doing. I had that epiphany. I had that, that, that light bulb went off in my head and said, this is it. You know, and, and you know, some people have it at different points in their lives. I had it during my freshman year in college. 
and went right back to my dorm and wrote the paper. And within a, within a week, I had joined the school radio station and started trying to write for the school paper and just kind of immersed myself in wanting to be in sports journalism. Uh, I wanted to be a radio guy. Uh, it didn't work out. It doesn't work out for everybody, and that's why when people come up to me for advice, I always say have a plan B, <laughs> because it doesn't work for it doesn't work out for everybody. And I ended up behind the scenes. Uh, I started it at the Islanders in the PR department, and spent five years there. Where moved over to the NBA in, in, in basketball operations. So I still was, you know, I, I was in sports, which was the dream, but I wasn't in the journalism side of things at that stage. Uh, after leaving the NBA, I took a little time off and, and did some side projects and had some fun. And uh, when I got back into working in the business, I was on the journalism side. I was in editorial. I, I was doing, uh, I was one of the editors for what at that time was CSTV.com. If you don't remember CSTV, it's now through different iterations. It's become the CBS Sports Network. And uh, stayed there for a while and became managing editor of NCAA.com as I worked my way up the ranks there, and then moved over into the TV side of things and uh, oversaw tickers for first CBS Sports Network and then Fox Sports. Not a bad little journey. No, no. It, you know, it, it was fun. You know, it took me out to L.A. for the last three years. I'm back in New York now. Um, you know, we've settled back in, in, in on Long Island and, you know, Searching, searching for that next opportunity. Obviously, you know, you hear everybody say that every so often. That's that's where I am now, uh, and, and the book, you know, comes out at the time, the right time for me to be able to use that and say, all right, here's something else that I have accomplished. You know, it, it's whether the whether a book is successful and sells well or not, it, it's something. To, it's a tangible result that I get to say, I did this, I accomplished this. And, and and it's another you know, nice thing to have on the resume for people to see that I can produce results. Absolutely, absolutely. And do you think there'll be a, a third and, and later iterations of the book as well? Uh, time will tell. <laughs> I, I'm playing with a different idea in my head that that I think could be really good, but, but the priority right now, you know, anyone that writes a sports book is going to tell you the same thing. You're not going to make money on it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, first things first is, Let's get settled in and find something that I am going to make money with. I have a seven-year-old son, and I have a mortgage to pay with my wife, and we have, you know, we have life to live. So let's get that squared away, and then I'll play around with, you know, do I want to do the next one? Which, like I said, could be, I think, could be a lot of fun, and we'll see where things take me. Very cool. And so when you were compiling the entries for these first two books, did you get to? chat directly with everyone or did they kind of just send over their responses uh, in you know like an email the first time around it was kind of split and I, I wasn't a fan of that because I like to be able to ask questions if I if I see something that I that I want to explore a little bit I, I want to be able to ask the questions so this time around I really pushed everybody to have a conversation with me on the phone and of the 65 people that are in this book, 63 of them were one-on-one uh, -on -one conversations. So I was able to sit and, if, like I said, if they said something and, and, and a story came up that I knew was going to turn some heads and, say, and get people to say, wow, 
I, I moved the conversation down that road. Uh, I, I let everybody pick the five events they want to talk about. Uh, I wanted everybody to make it as personal as possible. And, and, and it was for that exact reason that I wanted to be able to explore things. I wanted people to see why is Bob Costas in this business? What makes him tick? What, you know, was there something when one of these guys was a kid that they experienced that made them say, this is what I want to do, and this is why I do what I do, and, and remind everybody that they're sports fans first. So again, of the 65, 63 of them were one-on-one, -on -one, you know, ranging from 20 minutes to an hour plus on the phone just listening to stories and, and, and letting these guys just kind of go and, and talk. These are some of the great storytellers in our, in our country. Uh, anyone that's listened to Bob Costas talk on TV and reminisce knows how he tells a story. So I just wanted to let them go and and then you know figure it out and get it on paper after they were done and after their thoughts were all out there and there were no cameras and there were no you know they didn't have five million people watching them to, to hear what they were going to say and they had to watch every single word. I was able to clean up anything I needed to clean up. I let them all see what I would, what I put on paper because I wanted to make sure I represented their stories as well as possible. And from there, we put it all together, and and it was great. And and I got, I was able to get some stories that really make people say, "Wow, that's so cool." And I actually had to cut some stories out that were the same way. Oh. yeah, I think it, I think it really does come across uh, in in the book of just how you know, how passionate these people are about what they do and, and just how cool it is to see some of these events. And I know uh, Michelle Beadle, especially, I remember her being like, I forgot that I, you know, I'm not supposed to be a fan. Um, right, right, and She's just right. on the field jumping around. Um, and, and yeah, I think it is, it is hard to do that, um, you know, to, to kind of stay objective sometimes when you're seeing something this cool, so. Oh, there's no yeah. question. It's the hardest thing in the business is, you know, you, you know the rule, no cheering in the press box. And after a while, uh, it, it just becomes second nature. But certainly, in, in early in your career, it's hard not to. And there are people that, if they're not working, won't go up to the press box. They would rather just sit in the stands and be a fan. And there are plenty of stories like that of people mid-career that said, you know what, I want to go to that. And I'm not going to get a credential, I, even though I can get one. I'm going to go and I'm going to buy tickets. And I'm going to sit with a couple of buddies, and we're going to have a drink, and we're going to enjoy ourselves, and we're going to be fans. And, and that doesn't sound like a, a bad thing at all. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. And when, you, when you're able to do that, when you're able to say, you know, I, I'm not lucky enough to be in this group, but there are certainly plenty of people in this book that are that say, hey, I want to go to the World Series. And they're going to get a pair of tickets, and they're going to sit and and be able to enjoy themselves and not worry about, you know, being in the last row of the stadium. Although there are people that prefer being up there and just kind of being and trying to be as uh, inconspicuous as possible. Well, that, that actually segues very nicely into a question that I always like asking uh, sports minds about. Where is the optimal place, in your opinion, to sit to watch a baseball game, a basketball game, football game? It's never right up against the field. Never, ever. Um, the only one where I would say that, that you want to be as close as possible is probably baseball. Um, it's a different feel down there. You can hear the, the 
ball popping the gloves different. I, I, I've taken my son to minor league games, and we've sat two rows behind home plate. And the awe in his eyes of watching all these guys up close, and you can see and hear things. You can. It's easier to, to see how the players are reacting, certainly the outfielders when it comes to long fly balls and things like that. Um, I still prefer sitting up a little bit higher. There's a reason press boxes for the most part are midway up the, are midway up the stadium. Um, I would never, uh, and I used to sit when sit here when I was a kid at a hockey game. I would never want to sit up against the glass. Um, I did a, a, a number of times when I was a kid. Um, I would rather sit midway up the, the the stands for a hockey game, so you can see both ends of the ice and you can see plays unfold. Football, the higher you are, the better. Um, because you need to see the whole field to understand what's going on out on the field. I would never want to sit down low behind a bench. Um, and for basketball, down low isn't bad. Um, down low, you you get a, a great you get a great feel for being in the game. I was lucky enough to sit courtside doing stats at Nick games for six years, uh, so I'm a little bit spoiled. Uh, I'm not used to sitting up very high at basketball games. Um, but it's not for everybody because you can't appreciate it, it. It goes too fast down there. You can't appreciate what's going on in other spots if you're all the way down on the court. Um, I, I, again, I, I would say in that case, probably 20 rows up is probably the optimal. Um, you don't want to go too high for basketball. Yeah, that's spot on. That's like exactly how I feel. Well done. <laughs> Pass the quiz. Brilliant mind, yeah, right? Exactly. So when you were putting the book together, how long did, did getting all of the stories take? From the, uh, I got the, I, I would say I got the first interviews lined up. The first commitments were right about mid to late October of 2014. Uh, I started the interviews about a month after that. Uh, and believe it or not, the first interview I did for the book was Jim Nance. Oh. It just worked out that way. And once I had that interview, I was like, well, there's no turning back now. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, the last interview was probably about September. I actually interviewed a hundred people for this book. That was the original goal was to have a hundred people in it. And I did all hundred interviews. Um, and then as we were getting it onto paper, it was just, just way too big. Um, so we had to, we had to trim it down a little bit. So we knocked it down to 65 and, but doing the hundred interviews, I'd say the last one was probably done for all intents and purposes a year later. Uh, and then the, the painstaking task of transcribing everything. I tried to do it as I was going along. I wasn't very successful with that. Um, so I found myself transcribing nonstop for the next three months and getting everything on paper. Um, the final manuscript was done somewhere in the February range by the time it was all said and done and edited. So, I was, so you're talking about 15, 16 months. Yeah, transcribing is, is a process. I've yes. I've done it and it's just like yeah it's it's cool to hear people telling these stories but you're just like man sometimes you just talk too fast <laughs> my fingers only work <laughs> so it, fast yeah yeah I recorded everything and and you know you have to you have oh, yeah. to be able that's the, that's the only way to capture this because I'm trying to capture emotion at the same time and if I'm just going back going through notes I'm not going to do that so I want to you know you have to get it all on tape and then you're listening to it and you're saying all right, I don't need that part. I just transcribed 10 minutes of, of words that I'm never going to use. Uh, and an example I'll use is 
Um, Jerry Eisenberg, who is a Hall of Fame sports writer and is one of the legends in the boxing world, um, I sat on the phone with him for literally over an hour listening to Muhammad Ali's stories. And I couldn't use two-thirds of what he gave me just because I have space. Mm-hmm. And you, you sit there and you start transcribing it and you're going and you're going and you're going and you're like, all right, this is way too long. Where do I chop it? And you end up chopping two-thirds of what you just did. And it takes, you know, for me personally, uh, it would take me an hour to transcribe a 20-minute interview. Uh, so you, now you're talking an interview that was over an hour. That, that's a solid four hours that I just spent on that one guy um, who gave me some amazing content. And, you know, He's, he's written his own books on Muhammad Ali and stories you know, from the boxing world. Uh, so just the stuff that I wasn't able to use could have filled another chapter. Yeah, well, maybe we'll see a, a deleted scenes or something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you never, I have, look, I have 35 interviews in the can <laughs> ready for the next one if I wanted. Well, there you go. There you go. And so a couple, <laughs> couple follow-up questions from that. Uh, one, yeah. was anyone upset that they didn't make the cut? And two... Did anyone come back to you after, you know, another event happened and said, actually, I'd like to put that in my top five instead? I'm going to answer the second question first. Okay. Um, what I did was I, ha- I-, I instituted a cutoff. Uh, I started the interviews, as I said, in about in, so in November of 2014, um, and it was kind of a rolling, you know, rolling cutoff. And then when we hit Super Bowl 49, which was Patriots and Seahawks, which is one of the great endings, I reached out to everybody that I had interviewed and said, if you were at this game and you want to put it on your list, tell me, let me know. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get your story from there. And then at that point I said, all right, now I have a hard cutoff because I had, I had an event that was clearly worthy and, and, and is mentioned a number of times in the book. Um, but I had that I had that moment where it was I, I could use I could use it as a clean break mm-hmm. and say this this was it you know we, it, it was going to be a while before that one was going to be topped so let me let me just use that one as the end because I don't it's going to be hard to, to add something that happened in the next six months that can beat that one out so so nobody came back to me at that point one once once we crossed Super Bowl forty nine that was it um, as far as people being upset about not making the cut. There were a couple. Nobody really said anything to me. Um, I, I haven't. You know, I, I think a number of them probably would have been good promotional um, people at this point, but I have not had the nerve to ask them to go on one of their radio shows or something like that, simply because I didn't want to end up in that position where I cut you, but you put me on your show anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some, I, with, you know, I listed the names in the book, but again, without going into detail, um, there were some pretty decent-sized names in, the, in, in, that, in that group that I had to cut. Um, in some cases, it was because their lists weren't great, and I was pulling teeth to get them to tell stories. Again, I'm not attaching names to any of that stuff, um, because choice, there were some that told great stories. Um, and I just didn't have the room, and I had a... I had to weigh a number of different factors, not just who the most famous people were, uh, not just who told the best stories, not just who was going to be able to 
tweet out a you know, thing is about the book, and I did weigh that in. You know, I, I had to say, all right, I've got to sell the book when it comes out. So, all right, this person has a you know 150,000 Twitter followers. I'm going to weigh that a little bit and try to ride piggyback on that hair, you know, and and see if I can capitalize on that. Um, so there were there were a number of factors, and and it, and it certainly wasn't personal. I mean, I think everybody knows that. I. I can understand if someone kind of got got their feathers ruffled about being bumped, um, then I apologize to every single one of them personally. I think that's I think that's all you can do. And and you mentioned I uh, kind of looking at the Twitter followers as as something that you considered. Have you found that social media has been I uh, like the best way to market your book so far? I I think so. Uh, well, you know, having conversations like this. For, for sure, and then social media. It's a, the, one of the main reasons that I did this second book, it was never my plan to do it, another one. Um, but one, one of my friends uh, in the business is Kenny Albert. Um, we went to college together. We've been, we've been good friends for, for a long, long time. He was in the first book. He's one of the guys that when I need advice, I go to. Um, and he was the one that pushed me more than anybody to do a sequel to the book. Um, I mean, he, for three years, he was telling me, you need to do it, you need to do it, you need to do it. He was one of the guys at the beginning that, that got me to do the first one, and he was pushing me hard to do another one. And you know, his, his reasoning was that the first one, in his eyes, came out three years too early. Because there was no social media. I didn't have Facebook to promote it. I didn't have Twitter. Uh, now I do. Um, do I wish, uh, you know, at, at times I feel like I've oversaturated Facebook quite a bit. And, and um, you know, there I'm hitting the same 1,200 people or whatever it might be. And most of them are people I went to high school with that I don't really know. And, you know, you, you can pound people like that over the head quite a bit um, on Facebook compared to Twitter. Uh, you know, for, for Twitter, it's about trying to get people that, um, that I know on the periphery to retweet it and to get stuff out there so that they can reach the people that I can't. Um, and some people in the book have been wonderful with that and, and are willing to hit retweet anytime I ask. Others have basically not done anything. Um, which is fine, and I understand that that's a personal choice. Um, I wish, you know, there are, there are a couple people in the book that I wish had done just one, you know, mm -hmm. just hit the retweet button once because I mentioned you in the tweet. Um, but that, hey, again, like I said, that's personal choice. Uh, it certainly gets the word out there, though. Um, it, it, you know, in, in this day and age, you can track certain things, and I'm addicted to watching my Amazon ranking on Twitter. I mean, on Amazon. I'm addicted to watching it. And, you know, every time, every time it improves, I'm like, okay, that, whatever I just did worked. It usually improves after I do something like this, or after I find someone who hasn't tweeted about the book to tweet about the book. When I haven't done something for a day or so, I see it drifting in the wrong direction. Um, so I, I get an idea of what's working and what isn't working. And with the holidays coming up, I, I certainly plan on focusing uh, a lot of time on the stuff that has worked. And I need to find some people that, that, that I haven't hit on yet 
did kind of help me out a little bit. Yeah, seems like a, a good strategy. And it's it's cold, you know, you need a good book to stay inside during the cold winter months. Exactly. You know, one of the people in the book um, who has given me quite a bit of advice is Jeff Perlman, whose book Gunslinger just came out. She popped for him. He deserves it. Um, you know, his book is now, you know, I think it's number 13 on the New York Times bestseller list. You know, the advice he's giving me doesn't necessarily work for me because, uh, I'm, you know, I didn't write a book about Brett Favre. <laughs> and I have to do more of the grassroots type stuff, whereas he's got a high-profile subject and walks into the state of Wisconsin and can sell the book to everybody that lives in the state. Um, so I have, you know, I have to work harder at it, but I also have certainly stolen some of his ideas. A couple have worked, a couple haven't. Uh, again, you know, he has 50,000 Twitter followers and I have 1,200 or whatever the numbers are. Um, but it, it's a great tool. And, you know, if you find the right ways to use it, it, it can really help in a situation like this. Definitely. And so uh, I, I always like to wrap up with a top three, but since okay. you have the top five moments, we'll let you do your top five. Your top five I was there moments. Okay. Uh, well, I mentioned the Islanders earlier, the, and the first one was when I was working for the Islanders in 1993. Uh, I was... I was with the team. I was working in the PR department. I was traveling with the team in the playoffs, and we went into Pittsburgh, and those were the teams with Mario Lemieux and Yarmir Yager and, and all of the Hall of Famers, and we were this team, you know, and our best player was hurt. And we ended up winning that series in Game 7 in overtime in Pittsburgh on a goal by David Volek, who you know, goes down in anonymity unless you're an Islander fan. And, and it was just one of the great thrills of my career to be – working for the team that I grew up working, that I grew up rooting for, and being there to see one of the most unexpected uh, playoff series wins in NHL history. To this day, I believe it is still, as far as regular season points are concerned, I believe it's still the biggest upset in hockey history. Uh, so that would, be, that would be number one on my list. Um, even though I was an Islander fan, I was, uh, I was actually at the Rangers-Devils Game 7 in 1994 when Stefan Matos scored his famous goal. Uh, that was just, you know, being in a building like that when something like that happens and the Rangers go to the Stanley Cup Finals because of it. You, know, you, you can't help but, but, but understand the historical importance of that. Um, I mentioned I did stats at Nick Games. I was courtside for the John Starks dunk over Michael Jordan, which you might not want to hear about. <laughs> Um, but I was courtside for that, um, and I've never heard a building spontaneously combust the way I heard the garden go crazy that night. Um, it was just, it was a single solitary moment that just made everybody explode. Uh, contrary to that, I was also courtside for Michael Jordan's 55-point game after, his, after he came out of retirement. Wow. Um, which he did not win the game. He did not make the game-winning shot. He passed on the game-winning shot to Bill Wennington, um, and that goes back to the whole one guy can't win a game by himself. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to be there at courtside for that, and that was, I mean, as a Bulls fan, you know, that was a special night. Mm -hmm. It was just a special night from beginning to end. And then my last one 
and this goes back to what we said at the very beginning where I asked everybody to make their list very personal um, and, and I would hope for uh, stories that were kind of off the beaten path. And, and my last one was, was from the 2004 Olympics in Athens. I was there working for NBC. I was working on field hockey and I moved over to basketball. I actually was at the game where Argentina beat the United States in, in the Olympics in basketball to knock the U.S. out of medal con- or gold medal contention. That wasn't even the big moment for me at that at those games. Um, I had a lot of free time and actually decided to go to as many events as I could and went to weightlifting. And as it turns out, the Michael Jordan of Greece was a heavyweight weightlifter, and he had announced before the Olympics had started that he was retiring at the end of the games. And I didn't know any of this because I wasn't weightlifting and couldn't read Greek newspapers. So I just happened to be there that night when he was um, uh, when he was uh, uh, taking part in the heavyweight weightlifting competition, and he ended up meddling. He finished third, and when he came out for the medal ceremony, when it was all over, I've never been in a building at a sporting event that was more emotional um, and had a bigger combination of tears and cheering uh, and love as I was that night. He brought his kids out onto the medal stand with him to celebrate. He took his shoes off and left them behind, signify that he was retiring. Uh, and, and you could just see the love and admiration that this entire country had for this athlete. Uh, and, and I just stumbled upon it. And those are the best ones. And there are some great stories in the book that are like that. Uh, where people just stumble upon these moments that they don't expect to see that will live with them for the rest of their lives. And in my case, that that's one that I'll never forget. That sounds incredible. It was neat. And, and, and that's, that's, you know, that's part of why we all get into this business is it, to experience some neat and different things that we, you know, that, that are going to resonate with us and that are going to mold uh, our memories and, and and the rest of our lives, and I got to see something like that that does stay with me forever. Oh, I'm glad you got to witness it. Cause that that does sound very special. Yeah, it was. It was. And with that, I uh, I think you're off the hook. Is there anything else that I I should have asked that didn't I didn't? No, no. I think I I appreciate you taking the time. I I thought this was great. I I, I love. I love being able to not have to watch a clock and just kind of sit and talk and and, and, and tell stories. As you, as you can tell, I like to you know get a little deeper and go go a little bit longer with my answers. So I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Absolutely, and thanks for sharing. They were great to hear. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Anytime. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day, Eric, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Joey. Take care. All right. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Thanks for listening, and remember, why do sorority girls always travel in packs of three? Because they can't even. Get after it today, people.